you have your Bibles, open up to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 in the New Testament, that's between Ephesians and Colossians. Last week, we started a new series called What is a Disciple, as the video just showed. And Trey talked about our life in Christ. As disciples, what does it look like to follow Jesus and thinking about our life in Christ? This week, we're going to talk about our life in community. What does it look like to follow Jesus together? Now, we're a week in to the new year. I'm sure some of you made some commitments, some resolutions. How are we doing on those? Just checking in with you. Just checking in. Every, uh, every new year just offers us a great opportunity to make some New Year's resolutions, New Year's commitments. And maybe you've committed to read the Bible through in a year. Maybe you made that commitment. It's not too late to catch back up from the days you missed. Just encourage you. Maybe you've made a commitment to lose a few pounds. You might have even gone so far as to actually purchase some new exercise equipment. And then, you know, by this point, you probably walk by it in your room, in your garage, and you hear it mocking you. Mm hmm. There you go. You're just walking right by me. Commitment is a funny thing because it's something that our culture struggles with making commitments. And I think it's because we've learned just how fickle and unreliable we are. But I, I don't know if I can commit to that. I don't know what I'm going to be doing a week from now. I don't know what I'm going to be doing a month from now. But we make commitments, and life is based on these commitments. Our relationships are based off of commitments. Think about marriage. With marriage, you're making a commitment to another individual that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. Maybe you're an athlete, and you make a commitment to a college to go play a sport. You're committing. You're saying, yes, I'm going to go here to play sports. And you're bearing the burden of that commitment. Any commitment to another person is essentially us saying, yes, I'm going to see this relationship through to the end. But often we are far more committed and far to, far thing, to things that are far less important than our relationship with Jesus and his people. We're often far more committed to things far less important than our relationship with Jesus and his people. Whenever we think about our faith, we might think, well, this is just a relationship between me and God. This is me and Jesus. There's even a song out there, a country song, me and God. This is about, this is what our faith is about. And while it's certainly not less than that, your faith is much more than that. While our relationship with Jesus through his word, prayer, following the spirit is intensely personal, Following Jesus is as much of a relational commitment to each other as it is an individual one. In the Bible, God talks about his goal in salvation to be creating a new people, creating a people for his own possession, not just individually saving people randomly across the world, but creating a new people in Christ who exists for the glory of God. Trey mentioned last week that a lot of Paul's language, whenever he says you or us or we, you know, he went, went through the whole second person plural there with you. And whenever Paul says you, we, we read it as he's talking to me, an individual. He says, you must do this. I think I must do this. But the you's in Paul's letters are plural, most of them. You could even substitute it for y'all if you would like. The point is, is that our life in Christ extends to our life in community. 
When God saves us, he saves us to a people, not just by ourselves, but he saves us to be a body, the church. So today, as we look at Philippians chapter 1, 1 through 11, we're going to answer this question. What does it take to follow Jesus together in gospel community? And in one word, commitment. The main idea for today is that living together in gospel-centered community requires commitment. So what does that look like? Let's look at verse 1 in Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and, our Lord, and the Lord Jesus Christ. In these first two verses, I want us to see that the first thing we must be committed to is to Jesus and his people. Jesus and his people. You'll notice in Philippians 1, 1 through 2, it's the greeting of the letter, the opening of the letter. And we typically rush past this because we're just like, ah, it's just Paul again, reintroducing himself to us, letting us know who he's writing to. But there's a lot more going on here than what we realize, especially the history between the relationship of Paul, Timothy, and this church at Philippi. Way back in Acts chapter 16, we see this, the beginnings of this relationship. Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, picks up Timothy, meets Timothy, and Timothy comes alongside Paul in his missionary journey. And Philippi is one of the first places where they minister together. Here, this is where the episode of Paul and Silas in prison singing, you remember that episode? That takes place in Philippi. About three or four months after they ministered there, Paul had to leave. He continued his gospel preaching ministry, church establishing, church planting ministry as he went. And this letter was written approximately 10 to 13 years after that initial contact. So there's 10 years of gospel friendship, 10 years of relationship with this church. So as he writes to them, they're not strangers. He's not just letting them know, hey, remember me? Notice how he, the words that he uses to describe himself, servants of Christ Jesus, and he's writing to the Philippians as saints in Christ Jesus. Both groups of people are defined by their relationship to Christ. And you'll notice with the Philippians, he says, before he even says where they're from, he says that they're in Christ. They're saints in Christ who are at Philippi. That comes second. Why is that important? Well, because Philippi thought they were, the people in Philippi thought they were a big deal because they were a Roman colony and they prized their Roman citizenship. So yes, you ask them, are you from Philippi? Oh, absolutely, I'm from Philippi. I'm a Roman citizen. Why would you think any different? I'm from Philippi. But he places that in a subordinate place to their relationship in Christ. That's what is most important about them. We often do something similar we, we think that there are certain aspects of our life that become the most important thing about us. Our title, our status, our level of authority over others, our appearance. These things are the most things, the thing that matters most about us. But Paul flips that on his head and says the most important thing about these people is that they are saints in Christ. And he presents them, himself to them as a servant. Odd. The word is actually a slave. He places himself in the category of the lowest class in Roman society. Why would he do that? Because he's modeling for them what it looks like to be humble in a city that values pride, that values status, that values power, and how high you can climb up the ladder. 
Paul voluntarily takes the low place, placing himself beneath those that he's writing to. He says, I'm here to serve you. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, this relationship that has lasted for 10 years. What does that tell us about the nature of gospel community? Building gospel-centered community takes time and commitment. We don't like that because we are obsessed with speed in our culture. We are obsessed with how quickly we can get things done. I think some of you, if you could, would actually have like a friendship application beforehand, before meeting people, and say, hey, just fill this out real quick, and then I'll check and see if we're compatible. If not, I'll just move on. Yes, exactly. See, I knew I would get an amen there. We want things to happen quick. Amazon Prime, get your shipping, get your package in two days. Men, how many of your garages are still full of unbroken down cardboard boxes from Christmas or things your wife buys? That one was close to home, if you couldn't tell. If you go to Google, what's the fastest way to lose 10 pounds? How can I do this quickly? We want things fast, but that's not how relationships work. That's not how gospel community is built. It takes time and commitment and investment from each other. Now, we can think of a million excuses as to maybe why we don't invest more time or commit more to building community with other believers, whether that's finding a church home, committing to that church through membership, or even joining a life group. One of these excuses is, I haven't found a life group or a church that measures up to what I think they should be. In other words, I've got this ideal that I'm looking for, and until I find that, I don't, I'll, I'll be there, I may show up, but I'm not going to commit. In his classic book on Christian community, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, and this book is called Life Together. I would highly recommend you read it. He says, On innumerable occasions, a whole Christian community has been shattered because it has lived on the basis of a wishful image. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. If I were to kind of summarize that, as long as you're obsessed with an ideal, an ideal church, an ideal community, an ideal friend, you'll never love anything real. As long as you're obsessed with the ideal, you will never actually engage in a relationship where you actually love someone who is real, right in front of you. Because we can have all these platitudes in our mind about what, how things should be, and we can be so invested and so stuck in those ideals that nobody could ever measure up to that. And we bypass people left and right because they don't measure up to that. But we, and we know we, because we're not committed, we don't actually have to invest love, invest time, invest commitment to that person. So being committed to Jesus and to his people is the first thing that we must do uh, if we're going to live together in gospel-centered community. Second, as we get into the bulk of the letter, we must be committed partners in the gospel. Verses 3 through 8. So this is going to take us a second to read this, but in verse 3 he starts, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. We must be committed partners in the gospel. See, Paul, in verse 3, begins opening by greeting them and letting them know that he's so thankful for this relationship that he has with them. He is so thankful for them and, and the relationship that they share together. But there's a lot of things that he says. He says, I'm thankful when I remember you. I'm thankful when I pray for you. And I make these prayers with joy. And it's just, he's just effusively describing his love for them and his thankfulness for them. But what's the reason for that? Is it just because, hey, they're good buds. They, you know, went to high school together on the football team together? No. Verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. All these things that he says in this, his joy for them, his yearning for them, his affection for them, all of this, it's like the sun of the solar system is partnership in the gospel. And all these other things are orbiting around it. Partnership essentially means friendship, or if you remember the history of Eagles Landing, way back when, before it was Eagles Landing, it was Koinonia Baptist Fellowship. Koinonia is the word used here. And it's not just friendship as if we hang out sometimes, but it's a friendship in the gospel, a partnership in the gospel together where we lock arms and do ministry together. So what is this? It's partnership in the gospel is mutual sacrifice and service for the sake of the name of Jesus. It's locking arms together for the gospel to move forward. Um, Y'all ever played the game Red Rover? Red Rover, Red Rover, send so-and-so right over. Y'all think football is tough? Red Rover, you don't have pads, you don't have a helmet, and you just have to stand there while Dylan from third grade, who's 6'2 and 240, runs full speed at you and tries to take you out. That's Red Rover. The whole point of the game is that you have one team and you lock arms together and you, you hold tight as strong as you can so that anybody from the other team who's running at you can't break that bond. It's a funny picture of what I'm trying to explain with how gospel, what gospel ministry looks like and what community and partnering together for the gospel look like. It's us locking arms together, no matter what comes, for the sake of the goal, which is the name of Christ being exalted over the earth. Notice he says, I'm thankful for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul's now is really interesting when he writes this letter because he's in prison. He's in prison, probably in Rome. Not a great place to be if you go do some research on Roman prisons. But he's still expressing thankfulness and gratitude for these believers. He's still bubbling up with joy because of their relationship while he's in prison. From the first day until now, while he's in prison, they've not abandoned him. Gospel partnership walks through the hard stuff. And he says, not only... Are you partners with me in the gospel? But he uses the same word again a little later and says that you're partakers with me of grace. 
Now, we might think initially he's talking about salvation. Well, yeah, that's there in the text. But what he qualifies it with helps us see what he's actually talking about. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They're partners and partakers of grace, which is a gift from God, right? Grace is a gift from God. In the suffering and sacrifice that ministry requires. In the suffering and the sacrifice that walking together in gospel community requires. We don't typically think of that as a grace. We want to avoid suffering, avoid the hard stuff as much as possible. Paul says, no, no, no. You're partakers with me of grace. How is that possible? Because together, we are a part of God's people who he uses to advance his name throughout the ends of the world. We have been shown grace, being brought from darkness to light, being given new life, made a new people, given the Spirit. Romans 5 says that God pours his love into our hearts through the Spirit. We've been made new. And we've been inscripted into the people of God. That's grace. That's grace. He says, I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Now, what does this mean to be partners in the gospel? It means that to be committed partners in the gospel means that the gospel of Jesus is the one thing that unifies us together. Not a personality, not a platform, not uniformity of opinion on a variety of different issues, but the gospel of Jesus is the unifying factor. Now, what does this produce? What does gospel partnership produce? First, in verses 3 through 5, it produces gratitude. Paul thanks the Philippians and thanks God for their relationship. Gospel partnership produces gratitude. Paul has been the recipient of their generosity. Later in the book, he says, you are the only people to enter into partnership with me in my entire, in, in this initial stages of my ministry. You are the only people to support me, to care for me in the initial stages of my ministry. Paul has personally benefited from their growth in Christ. But he's in prison. They're not. Might be a little easy to feel a little bit down about yourself. And one thing is for certain is there were some other guys in Philippi while Paul was in prison, some other preachers, and they were actually kind of glad Paul was in prison because they were a little frustrated that he was getting all the attention. Paul comes into town. They lose their audience. Now he's in prison. They're preaching Christ to hurt Paul, being envious and sensing a rivalry there. Rather than being grateful for Paul and his ministry and what God has done through him, these guys are riddled with envy and rivalry. Genuine gratitude for another believer and how God is working in their life cannot exist where envy and rivalry have a hold. Gospel partnership, though, produces this gratitude. Next, gospel partnership produces confidence. In verse 6, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Again, we tend to hear this individually. 
this good work being salvation. That's what we typically think. But this is not merely related to our individual salvation. Remember what I said about Paul's use being plural? You might even be able to read it like this. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you all or among you all will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This good work, I want you to just pick up on some of the language here. He says, from the first day until now, a good work, the beginning of, Paul's alluding to the new creation. What God has done, this good work, is creating a new people in Christ who are unified together underneath the gospel, underneath the name of Christ. That's what this good work is. It's not just, it doesn't stop at my personal salvation. It extends beyond that to our salvation and what God does through us for his name. Notice his confidence isn't just merely resting on some past event. Hey, I remember that day you trusted Christ. His confidence is based on what they're presently doing. Their present commitment in the gospel. I think we can be tempted to think and think that our salvation is just, it, we, oh yeah, way back then. Way back then I, I did that, I prayed that prayer. Way back then I did that. How, where are you now? Where are you now? Are you following Jesus? Are you trusting him still? Are you growing in your faith? Because Paul says his confidence in their salvation is the fact that they are still currently involved in the good work, in this partnership in the gospel. That's where his confidence rests. And then thirdly, gospel partnership produces affection. Produces affection. In verses 7 through 8, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says, it is right for me to feel this way. Why would he say that? That's a, that's a weird way to start a sentence about like justifying how you feel about somebody. It's right for me to feel this way. Because it would be wrong to feel any other way. It would be wrong for Paul to hold bitterness in his heart with, against these people who are partners in the gospel. It would be wrong for Paul to be negligent and to abandon them as partners in the gospel. It is right for him to feel this way, an affection toward them that stems from the love of Christ. In Psalm 16, verse, verse 3, in the first two verses, David's talking about his love for God, how God is a refuge to him. And in verse 3, he says something pretty interesting. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom, is all my in, in whom all my delight is. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. His love for God has flowed down to a love for his people. Gospel partnership produces affection. He's saying this as well to provide a model for them. Why do they need this model? Because there's actually a problem in this church. There's division among two women who were, at one point, worked side by side in the gospel. But now there's a rift, a relational rift between these two women, and it's hampering the gospel. It's hampering the church's display of the gospel to the place around it. 
He wants them to realize what is right, the right way to feel about people in the church, about people you lock arms with and do life, whether it's in a life group, in the church body, on a service team, the right way is to feel an affection for them. Not to allow bitterness, envy, relational problems to just stay and exist. He says, I yearn for you. This is a deep affection that actually recognizes distance between them. Paul's in Rome, probably. They're still in Philippi. But the distance hasn't destroyed that gospel partnership. There's never, never a true goodbye for Christians. Never. It's always a see you later. Because if you don't see them in this life, you'll see them in heaven. Now, I want you to see at the end here, he says in verse 8, <clears throat> how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is affection and love that is rooted in the love of Jesus Christ. This is not something Paul has produced on his own. This has grown from his relationship with Christ. Now, maybe you're thinking, you've, man, that sounds like a really good friendship. And I don't know if I've ever had one like that. I don't know if I've actually been in a church where I've had that type of gratitude and confidence and affection for other believers. Maybe it's because sometimes we get the ends mixed up with the means and we pursue joy, we pursue confidence, we pursue affection, we pursue these things not realizing that those are actually byproducts of partnering together in the gospel. Remember what I said earlier. He's thanking them because of their partnership in the gospel. And it is that partnership, it's that commonality that has now produced all of these emotions that are flowing out of Paul, all of this relational joy that is flowing out of Paul. It's rooted in their partnership in the gospel. And so you're not going to experience these types of relationships on the sidelines. You're not going to experience these types of relationships if you pop in and pop out. These come, as I said earlier, building gospel community takes time and commitment. It means committing to a group of people, and over time, these things develop as you serve together, as you pray together, as you share together, as you share meals together. But in, in all of it, God is the one who does this. God is the one who establishes this. So, first, we must be committed to Jesus and his people. We must be committed partners in the gospel. And number three, we must be committed to growing in Christ-likeness. Let's look at verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the love of righteousness, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul, after thanking them for their partnership in the gospel, now he's expressing his prayers for them. In light of everything we know now about Philippi, this is what he's praying for them. The division that exists there, they're also experiencing persecution. There's some false teachers that are in town wreaking some havoc by spreading false teaching. That's in Philippians chapter 3, if you want to go read about that. 
But now these are his prayers. So let's look at what he prays. He prays essentially for two things as they grow in their Christ-likeness. He prays that they would be full of Christ's love and full of Christ's righteousness. Full of Christ's love and full of Christ's righteousness. Look back with me at verse 9. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now to keep us thinking from this, that this is some type of love that we just have naturally. This is some kind of just natural love that everybody has and you, this is what you give out. It's actually connected to the previous verse in verse 8. Remember he says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I do this. Now I pray that your love would abound more and more. The same love that I'm expressing to you which comes from Christ. That's the source. This is not anything that's natural. This is the love that comes through Christ. Now, what does this love look like? Because he doesn't really give us, if it's, if it's Christ's love that we're growing in, what must that look like? First, it's a love marked by self-giving. Philippians 2 details for us exactly what the love of Christ for us looks like. Though he had ultimate status and equality with God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead took on the likeness of men took on the position of a servant, a slave, and finally died the death of a criminal on the cross. All in obedience to God. It's a, it's a love marked by self. When was the last time you experienced an inconvenience for a brother or sister in Christ? When was the last time you took a hit, you rearranged your schedule, for another brother or sister in Christ and didn't gripe about it. A love that comes from Christ is a love that's self-giving, freely self-giving. It's also a love marked by self-forgetfulness. You might even call this humility. Now, there's a lot of like bad notions of humility out there, so let me just kind of maybe define it a little bit. One guy wrote that humility is not thinking less of yourself as if it's some type of self-flagellation, a self-abasement, or you know, self-deprecating humor. That's not humility. Humility is thinking of yourself less. In other words, you're thinking of others more. Whenever the schedule rolls through the day, and I haven't perfected this by any stretch of the imagination, whenever your schedule rolls through the day, you're not the top of your priority list. There's a guy like that, actually, in Philippi. They sent, Philippi sent a guy named Epaphroditus to go minister to Paul. While he's there, he gets sick, almost to where he's to the point of dying. And what Paul writes about him in Philippians chapter 2 is that while he was there, sick and almost dying, his main concern was that the church back at Philippi would be worried about him. His concern was for them and all the things that they were having to deal with while he's on his deathbed. That's a picture of this humble, self-forgetful love where we think of ourselves less and think of others more. That's what love looks like. And then thirdly, it's a love marked by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Look at what he says here in verse 9. He says that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, and all discernment. Your translation might say an insight. Knowledge and discernment. So it's not just this love, this fuzzy feeling that we're talking about. It's a love that's governed 
by knowledge. It's paired with knowledge and discernment. What is, what's the difference? Why, why is that different? Why do we need to understand that? Love without knowledge and discernment is blind. Without knowledge and discernment, you don't know how to apply what love looks like. You don't know in what situations love should be administered. How should this be carried out? But knowledge and discernment without love is bankrupt. Paul tells us that knowledge alone puffs us up. But when it's paired with love, it's different. Knowledge alone makes us arrogant. What knowledge without love means you've got the stuff. You just have, you don't have the relational genuineness, the love necessary to actually apply it in a way that's helpful. Love without knowledge and discernment is blind. Knowledge and discernment without love is bankrupt, but love with knowledge builds up. In other words, love with knowledge and discernment has the wisdom to know how to handle situations, different situations. And notice he says that the reason for this is so that you may approve what's best or what is excellent. So there's a goal with this. It's not just to be loving. It's not just to have knowledge or discernment. But it's to be able to approve what is best in any given situation. Well, what knowledge are we talking about? Knowledge of God. Knowledge of his word and his will and what he expects of us. But then discernment is a little tricky. Some of you think you have discernment just because you have funny feelings about people sometimes and you're right. You know? I just knew that about him. It's not necessarily discernment. The discernment is a spiritual understanding in this context about how to go about a given action or situation with love. Notice this is rooted in love. Oh, I pray that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. So as you're living together and loving each other, this knowledge and discernment is going to help you do that better. The more you know God, the more you know his word, the more you know his will, and the more you trust the spirit, you're going to know what's best. You're going to know how to love. Ephesians chapter 4, I think it's verse 3, says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Right? There is a unity of the Spirit in the church. It's not just an in, he's not just an individual entity that lives in just you. Right? The Spirit binds us together in the bond of peace. And we should be eager to maintain that. This is what love is about and what he's talking about. But the goal is to approve what's best. In their situation, they've got division in the church. They've got two ladies who don't like each other. They're in a rift. What's best, according to love, is reconciliation. What's best, according to love, is humility. For them both to embrace humility and to pursue each other together. And then there's verse 11. It's full of love, full of Christ's righteousness. This is not necessarily talking about status, but our attitudes and actions. The fruit of righteousness, the things that come from being righteous. Righteousness should produce attitudes and actions that look righteous, that are righteous. He says the whole point of this, though, is that we would be blameless on the day of Christ. That when Christ returns, there would be so much evidence of our love for one another stacked up in our favor that there's no concern. Blameless doesn't, it's not just talking about individual holiness, but it's talking about, in this context, that relationally blameless. 
that you'd have no reason to think that there's no unity among you before Christ, blameless at the day of Christ. What does this tell us, though? Lovelessness has eternal ramifications. Lovelessness in the church has eternal ramifications. It says that there's going to be a day when Christ returns. And Paul's hope for them, as it would be for us, is that our love would abound more and more and more, overflowing like a waterfall over a cliff. So that at the day of Christ, there is so much evidence stacked in our favor that we genuinely do love each other, not because we're, we like the same people or we have the same interests, but because we're both in all unified around the gospel. This is not something we can do individually. I can't go do all of this by myself, and neither can you. We were never meant to live the Christian life apart from community. We were never meant to live the, the Christian life apart from the body of Christ, unified together in Christ. One uh, writer said that long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible to genuine progress in the Christian life. You need others to grow in Christ-likeness the way God intends. Lastly, in verse 11, at the end, we must be committed to the glory of God. You might think, hey, these are just the last seven words in this paragraph, and yeah, of course, we should do all of this to to the praise and glory of God. That's what verse 11b says at the end, to the glory and praise of God. All this should be the case. But we shouldn't rush past this knowing what we know about Philippi and knowing what we know about our culture. There are places, we're a place that values status, that values glory for me, attention for me, applause for me. That's what we want. Paul ends it by saying all of this is to the praise and glory of God. The greatest competitor for the glory God deserves is you. It's me. The glory of self is the greatest opponent to the glory of God. Remember the preachers we talked about? They were preaching from rivalry, out of competition for one another. They had a desire for power, status, and praise. We have the same desires. Whenever we walk into a worship gathering, we're top of our priority list often. Who's going to say hey to me today? Who's going to notice my haircut? Who's going to notice how I dressed? Are they going to be friends with me this week? Our our desire for glory is strong. Paul ends this by saying all of this is for naught if it's not for the glory of God. All of this doesn't matter if it's not for the glory of God. Our partnership in the gospel, being committed together, our committing to growing in Christ-likeness, you can do that and still not do it for the glory of God. You can serve in the church, you can lead a life group, you can show up on Sunday mornings, and it not be for the glory of God. It can all be for you. So Paul's last little line here is a reminder that the most important person in the room is God himself. The most important person in the church is God. Notice, 
Who is it that began the good work? It's God. Who is it that's going to see it through to completion? It's God. What's the source of all these things that we're going to be sharing with one another, the love, affection, and gratitude? It's Jesus Christ. And whose glory is this too? It's to God alone, not to me, not to you. We must make sure that in all of our commitment to the things of God, we are not committing ourselves so that we will be honored. In all of our sacrificing for others, in all of our putting ourselves beneath others, we can't crave recognition, praises, or accolades. It is all about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, as a result of this, maybe you need to take a couple of steps at the end of this. Maybe there's a gospel friendship that once existed and was vibrant among you, that whether through conflict, distance, or something was said, you've allowed that relationship to grow distant, not just because of time or space, but because of bitterness and envy and rivalry. Maybe you need to, in humility, confess that and go and repair that. Go and seek reconciliation in that relationship. It's not right to hold bitterness toward, against one another as partners in the gospel together. Maybe we need to confess Christless attitudes that we've held toward one another. Confess attitudes of pride, of envy, where we've not loved and had the opportunity. Maybe, maybe you're a Christian, but maybe you're not really involved in the life of the church. I want, I want to tell you, you're not going to experience these kind of relationships not a part of the life of the church. You're not going to know what it's like to share affection, joy, sympathy for another brother or sister in Christ apart from partnering together in the gospel, committing to one another, genuine commitment. So what I'd encourage you to do is to check out a life group. What I'd encourage you to do is find friends in the church who do walk together in gospel community and ask to join in. Life groups, who are you inviting in? Knowing how important this is, we should be the first ones to invite a face that we don't recognize. Lastly, I want to encourage you that all of these things, all of these things that we've been talking about this morning, This is what God desires for you. This is what God wants for you because he knows what's best for you in following Jesus is to do it together with other Christians.